0: Sorry for the delay, guys. Uh, But I do want to thank you for being here today. Uh, Obviously, I have a background in the media, understand the jobs that uh, you have to do, and I have heard from my staff that you want to have a bit more opportunity to ask me questions directly on issues other than the issues that we're doing announcements on. So I know that Ralph Klein used to do this quite frequently and so I'm, I'm happy to be able to accommodate that and this will be the first I hope of many sessions like this. But before we get uh, to the questions, I just have a few minutes that I would like to highlight the work that we've been focused on. First of all, affordability for Albertans. We know that this is still a top-of-mind issue for Albertans and we're working very hard to provide relief effective January 1st. Albertans are once again saving 3.6 cents for every litre of gas and diesel and those savings bring Alberta's gas prices to about 23 cents lower on average than the national average. Each t- uh, so every time each of us goes to the pump we are keeping more cash in our pockets. We're also preparing to roll out the first of our direct support payments to families, to seniors and to vulnerable Albertans. You heard about this yesterday. An extra $100 a month for these Albertans will go a long way to bridging the gap between being able to say yes to a purchase or say no. And as Minister Jones and Minister Glubish and Minister Amory said just yesterday morning, the portal for applications for Alberta families and seniors will open next week and then we'll be doing a deposit at the end of each month, with the first month being January 31st. But equally important to note is that many Albertans will receive those supports automatically without needing to apply, and that includes Albertans who are receiving AISH and income supports and the Alberta Seniors Benefit, as well as those receiving services through PDD and both foster and kinship care programs. Uh, We are also supporting the work of Alberta's food banks, who have been called upon even more lately, as inflation has been making it more difficult for Albertans to buy the food that they need to feed their families. Last month, for instance, Minister Nixon announced $5 million in grants to help organizations helping to provide food security across the province, and in addition, we will have matching donations that they received in December up to about another $5 million. The grant guidelines and applications are now open, and so I'm pleased that he has brought this initiative forward, and it will continue next year as well. The, while inflation remains high, though, I need to highlight that our economy it's doing incredibly well. It's growing. In December, over 41,000 new full-time jobs were created in our province. And that really is something to celebrate. There are still 100,000 job openings in our province. Uh, so Alberta is still calling, which means that there is work for those who are looking. And that work is an ever-increasing number of industries and sectors as our province continues to, diversi- to diversify its economy. This is why I'm also concerned about Justin Trudeau's Just Transition, as he calls it, because when I hear the words Just Transition, it signals eliminating jobs. And for Alberta, that is a non-starter. I think we all share the same goals when it comes to reducing emissions, and that's across all industries, including oil and natural gas. We are working with the federal government closely on technologies like carbon capture, utilization and storage, hydrogen-critical minerals, but the good work gets lost when they use this kind of divisive, polarizing language. Because the world is looking for energy, for more energy, for more petrochemicals, for more LNG. This is not an industry in decline, but it is one of the uh, industries that is strategic to world energy security. And Alberta is one of the most responsible producers of energy in the world and has been for decades. We will continue to advocate on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of workers whose livelihoods depend on this industry. And we expect the federal government to stand up for our world-leading oil and natural gas workers instead of trying to eliminate their jobs. So thank you. Uh, That's just what I'd like to say by way of opening, and I'd be happy to take your questions. Okay, we'll start with uh, questions question. Do you mind if I just see if there's some water here?
1: Uh, One question, one follow-up. Like, always, we'll hit the room, and then we'll hit the phones. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with you, Rick, because you no, 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 no. asked.
2: <laughs>
1: if she can hear you from there. He's... Go ahead.
2: Okay, I'll ask a question. Actually. First? Uh, was never uh, first. The, uh, I, I am stuck in there. I didn't really realize. <laughs> i not smart enough to realize that. But anyway, uh, yeah, let's go back to the just transition. You have said very clearly, very strongly, unequivocally, that you want to defend the oil patch, oil and gas industry. You you have said time and again, including yesterday, in a statement that Trudeau, quote, really wants to shut down the industry and eliminate the workers' jobs, and we're just not going to allow him to do this. Mm-hmm. We've heard other premiers say that in the past for the last few decades. So, number one, do you believe that that is his real intention? Do you believe the intention of the prime minister and his government is to... Phase out, the, get rid of the oils, like how big a threat do you perceive um, the Just Transition plan and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government and the Great Jesus of Montreal and all the rest of them? How big a threat do you actually see that in reality?
0: I think it's a big threat. And, and the reason for that is the language they're using. Just transition is the language that they used when they phased out the coal industry. It is a social justice term. If they wanted to talk about sustainable jobs, that's uh, completely different. And we'd be quite happy to talk to them about sustainable jobs in carbon tech, sustainable jobs in hydrogen, sustainable jobs in this new economy that we're developing around small modular nuclear and, and other types of projects, I think we're, we're all on board with that. But to use that terminology, they're virtue signaling to an extreme base that is openly advocating to shut down oil and natural gas. Because look at what hap- happened out of COP27. The final communique talked about ultimately shutting down the oil and natural gas industry in the same way that coal had been phased out. We have a prime minister who, when he ran in the nas- last election, talked about that uh, the need to phase out oil sands, eventually, he looked at it as inevitability. We, we don't look at it that way at all. We think that the world is going to need more natural gas. We believe that with carbon capture technology, uh, it's going to make it more and more sustainable. Hydrogen, at its base, the, the best way to make it is out of methane, which is natural gas. When you look at uh, our oil sands producers, they have an aggressive strategy to reduce emissions and use more bitumen beyond combustion. There's a petrochemical industry that we've been supporting here. So, we're just shifting the paradigm. This is not about phasing out any of these jobs. It's about growing them and expanding the opportunity for oil and natural gas workers. And that's the kind of language I would like to hear the Prime Minister use because we, we, I think, missed an opportunity when the German Chancellor was here saying that there wasn't a business case for LNG. The Japanese Prime Minister is coming this week begging us to do more development so that we can export LNG. And I would like for a change for the Prime Minister to say, yes, we can and to work with us on making that happen. And this, these kinds, this kind of, of targeted attack on our industry, it, it doesn't lend itself to cooperative federalism. That's what I'm worried about, and I do take him seriously because of the, the, past, um, the past statements that he's made on this.
2: Now, as a supplementary, um, let us just say for the moment that your fears are in, in large part realized, and, and he does proceed aggressively, because we don't know what the Just Transition Plan is yet. But let's say it is a very aggressive plan. What is it that, and a lot of, I think, Albertans would like to know, what is it that you are willing to do? Like when you say, we're just not going to allow him to do this. Does this mean, you know, readers have asked me this morning, does that mean the Sovereignty Act? Does that mean, like, what does that exactly mean? It's one thing to say that you don't like what Trudeau's doing. It's another, it's it's also the right, it's, you also say, you'll stand up. But what happens if he actually does pursue an aggressive agenda? What are you concretely prepared to do in response? Again,
0: I have to see what it is that he has planned. But I'll, I'll give you a, a for instance. This, this announcement that somehow within two years, we're going to have 20% of all new vehicles in Alberta be zero, be electric vehicles. So, I I mean, I'm wondering why he isn't asked how are we going to do that. I know, for instance, because I drove a hybrid car over the summer, there's a five-year waiting list for hybrid vehicles with Toyota and an equally long waiting list for other electric vehicles. How do you then mandate that 20% of all vehicles sold in Alberta are going to be electric when they aren't even going to be available? I just spoke yesterday with the developer who 's installing um, uh, who's, who needs to to install transformers. We used to be able to get them within days there 's an eighty week delay to install a transformer. You need to do that to be able to enable more houses to be able to have plug in vehicles we 've got a two year wait to be able to even upgrade our power grid so at some point, we have to have an honest conversation about what 's doable and what 's possible because here, here is the issue. If the federal government is pursuing emissions uh, caps and targets that are too aggressive and too short a time frame and unachievable, it is a de facto production cap, which means it's a violation of our constitutional right to choose to develop our own resources. So those are the conversations we're having publicly right now, making them aware that the things that they're announcing are not achievable in the time frame they want to announce it. But if, if we're working towards the same goal of emissions reduction and we have a reasonable time frame, And we're working towards having the same kind of technological advancement, then I think we can work collaboratively and cooperatively. So I'm going to try to do that approach first. My read of how the Supreme Court operates is that if we both agree that there's a problem, Alberta does not act in its area of jurisdiction, then the courts will defer to Ottawa to act in our areas of jurisdiction. It's why we have a carbon tax, and it's why they took over plastics. So we are going to make sure that we put forward a robust plan to reduce emissions in a way that works for Alberta. And then we'll be prepared to, if we have to, to have them take us to court to fight it out because we are not phasing this industry out. We don't have to. We can export LNG, which will reduce global emissions. We can use carbon technology to capture CO2 embedded into useful products or buried underground. We can develop a hydrogen industry. We can develop a small modular nuclear industry. And those are all all of the things that get us to the same goal. So I I believe that if it came down to a court fight, that we'd win it. Let me correct
3: you there for a second. Uh, It's uh, by 2026, in three years. This 20% uh, zero emissions vehicle uh, mandate, not two years. Okay, ago. I thought he said 20 But, but I wanted to finish your thought there. How, because your office had talked about uh, using the Sovereignty Act um, to blunt the effect or somehow combat the zero emissions vehicle. How would that work?
0: Um, I... I think I'm, what I'm interested in looking at is how might we be able to bring more zero-emissions vehicles on in our market? Our market, it actually makes more sense for us to be pursuing hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And I, I quite frankly, don't think that the federal government is doing enough to be able to attract that kind of development here. So that's the kind of thing I'd like to see, is if are we able to attract Toyota or Honda or Hyundai to come here and develop hydrogen fuel cell vehicles? Are we able to do more work with our transportation industry to do dual-use um, engines as they are right now and converting them to hydrogen and biodiesel? Is there some way that we can use additives or new products to be able to reduce overall emissions? I've seen a number of technological advancements along those lines. So there are different ways to be able to achieve a reduced emissions outcome, and that's what we'll be putting on the table.
3: Sorry, you have, once again, that, that doesn't explain how the Sovereignty Act would work. Nothing as I said, we,
0: we haven't made a decision to invoke the Sovereignty Act on anything.
1: I have a different topic for you. We have a statement from Health Canada that says they received proposals by Alberta for the importation of certain ibuprofen and acetaminophen for use in pharmacies and that a decision was provided to you guys in December. What exactly did that decision
0: say? There's a couple of things that we had to do in working through with a, a new supplier. The um, Health Canada has to go through and uh, examine the manufacturer. They have to examine our import facilities. We had to make sure that the formulation was the same Um, as we would sell for uh, generic products here. Uh, We had to get French and English packaging approved, And we went through all of those different steps, and so as a result, we have our first shipment arriving on the weekend. It's going to be for Alberta Health Services use. It's 250,000 bottles. The remaining 4.750 million bottles are going to be subject to an additional delay because for retail use, you have to have a childproof cap. As I understand that, we are working on making sure that that approval process is taking place, and so that'll be the second batch. And as soon as we know when the retail use is going to be available, we'll do another another uh, press release. But the, the good news is that our Alberta Health Services hospitals will have the first shipment by this weekend. Well, I'm
1: talking specifically about pharmacies. So those are supposed to be on the shelves by Christmas is what you guys said. They aren't on the shelves. So I'm just wondering, so... How I understand it is that it was actually rejected, that proposal in December, and then you had to put forward a new proposal. Mm. Is that
0: correct? No, it was just a, a process we went through. I mean, we respect Health Canada has a role in making sure that we have the safest product possible on the shelf. And the issue that they had was that we, when you make a product available for a retail use, it has to have a, a child-proof cap. So we're just working with the manufacturer to make sure that that is in place so that we can make it available for retail use. And, I, look, I don't want to rush Health Canada. certainly want to make sure that uh, people... Assume as the, the supply arrives that they feel confident in it. It really was just a matter of us meeting the reg- regulatory conditions, and that was the last condition we needed to meet. So you had to put forward a new application? Uh, we've been working with them right from the beginning. We always knew that we would have a certain amount that would, uh, that would arrive that would be for AHS use and then we had to continue working with them to make sure that we had the bottling that met their specifications. One of the specifications was we had to make sure that it was listed in the same uh, familiar type of formulation that we have in Canada. We had to make sure of French and English uh, labeling, and this last hurdle is we just have to make sure we've got the child proof cap. So it's been a process that we've been going on. It's just taken a little bit longer than we expected, but the first shipment is arriving this weekend for Alberta Health Services
1: and this is the same application that came back in December. Uh,
0: I've, I've been working with this uh, on this all the way along. We have been working with Alberta Health, uh, with Alberta Health or with uh, Health Canada to make sure that we were meeting all of their compliance. It's a brand new supplier. There's just a couple of hurdles that we needed to get through and uh, we're, we're almost at through the, on the last one.
2: Premier, back on the Sovereignty Act in regards to your government and, and respectfully, there, there's been a lot of complaints from your government towards the federal government in, in recent weeks. Uh, the last couple of days, Minister Shandow today is releasing a statement in regards to the uh, firearms confiscation. Uh, just yesterday, Minister Bowen talking about rain Lake, even though that's a national park, so I don't know where the Sovereignty Act would come in there. Uh, we've heard the energy side of this as well. When does it become more about enacting this legislation using it for what it's intended to do instead of just?
3: To well,
0: it was one, it's one more tool as in us pushing back against Ottawa. I think we've got lots of tools at our disposal. I'm just disappointed with the federal government that they've said that they didn't want to fight, and yet they're continuing to make announcements without consulting with us. Uh, the, they came through with changes to the firearms legislation that wasn't supposed to include hunters and sports shooters until the last minute when it did. The issue around Moraine Lake, they, they didn't even call our Parks Minister, there's some things that they could have done on Moraine Lake because I recognize that they've got limited parking, but how are people with canoes and kayaks and dogs supposed to get up there? Um, The hours that they're proposing are too limited. Uh, there, there could have been more that they could have done to reduce the cost on this because the parking is for free, and we want to make sure that the, that there's more accessibility. So those are the kind of things that if they had just reached out and talked to us, we might have been able to make some, some resolution. And certainly on the issue of, of emissions reduction... Uh, My my environment minister, Sonia Savage, has gone to COP27. She's gone to COP15. She's engaging with the department. For them to just come out of the blue with this legislation without calling us, that, that to me is provocative. And we have demonstrated that we are putting up a shield so that they stop doing this. And that's what we had hoped, that they would... Take it in the spirit it's intended, which is don't pass legislation or announce legislation in our areas of jurisdiction. That's all we're asking for. So I, I hope that we can move towards something more collaborative, so that we can achieve the same ends that we all want. But I'm not I'm not very impressed with the way this new year has started.
2: Would you agree that Marine Lake is technically federal jurisdiction and a national
0: park? Yeah, but why can't they? I mean, why can't they have called us to just give us the heads up on things? That's what I don't understand because we we all know that uh, making any decision that's going to impact access is, is going to have a, a reaction. People don't know the difference about who to call, federal or provincial government. kind of hit us out of the blue as well. And we think that there's some reasonable changes that they could make that would make sure it was more accessible. So I think I think that was the frustration that my uh, Forestry, Parks and Tourism Minister was, ex- was expressing. You talk
1: about it being a symbolic gesture, putting a shield around Alberta. At what point does it stop becoming, it's implemented, we're signaling something, and when does it become action? If you aren't happy with how the New Year started, if you aren't happy with a a litany of things that you have uh, discussed at length, when does it shift? What would that take?
0: It it depends on how far the 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 Prime Minister is prepared to go in pushing this. I, I know that there are ministers in his government that we can work with that uh, understand our position, and we're working closely with them to try to make sure that we can achieve our, our, our common goals. Um, so I, I'm just going to keep on working on in that vein until we see what kind of legislation comes forward. They're not back, I don't believe, until January the 30th, so I want to see what the legislation looks like and uh, what kind of impact it's going to have. But they need to stop this language. They need to stop using the social justice language of just transition because we all know what that means. It means phasing out oil and natural gas workers, and that is not on. If they want to talk to us about how we'll invest in hydrogen, how we can collaboratively invest in carbon capture and technology, I'm all open to having that discussion, as I told the Prime Minister the first time that I spoke with him. But I I would just like to see that they're recognizing that we are a leader in this, in this area. We're a leader on hydrogen production. We're a leader on carbon technology, as opposed to acting like somehow we're, we're late to the party on this. We're not. We've been doing this kind of work for decades in hydrogen and uh, since 2007 on carbon technology. So I think that there's um, a, a little bit of, of uh, politicking happening at the federal level. Maybe there's a federal election coming, but it's not helpful uh, when we're trying to, to find uh, some, some joint and common solutions around these issues
1: talked about being willing to move forward with health care measures, even if the federal government doesn't come to the table with more funding. Uh, but what does that look like? Where would that money come from if you're talking about big reforms to the system beyond what you've announced already?
0: The Here's the thing. I look at health care as the number one important, most important thing Albertans expect me to act on and to make improvements on, which is why it was the first action that I took after getting elected, was to make sure that we put in a new uh, official administrator who could help guide some of those changes. And we identified four areas that we needed to work on. One was reducing emergency wait times. Another was reducing the amount of wait that ambulances have at hospital. The third was reducing the surgical wait times. And the fourth one is making sure that everyone has a medical home, a family doctor or a group of doctors who can help them. And And none of those things... Uh, uh, require me to sit back and wait for the federal government to come in and help. We have to act on those things regardless. And so we're making strides on that. We're already intending to put $600 million per year back into the system next year and the following year. And we're just going to keep on making those kind of incremental changes. I can't stop doing reform because the federal government doesn't want to partner with us. So, that, so great if he comes to the table with, uh, with more funding support, but we're not going to stop with the reforms that we're doing.
2: How does that look then? some of these reforms without waiting for the uh, federal government's uh, funding there. How do you move forward with that, and what difference would that be uh, with the federal government without the federal government?
0: Well, a couple things. I mean, this is the reason why we, we announced non-ambulance transfers in December, because if you can have a separate vehicle that is able to transport a patient to a, um, to, to a hospital or to a, pardon me, to a medical appointment, which is a routine appointment, then that ambulance stays available in the community when there's an acute need. Um, I asked Dr. John if he could give me an assessment. How many operating rooms have we not opened? How many have been mothballed? And he said that there's 55, and he said that there's actually some really quick changes that you can make to bring to, uh, to bring them back on. So as I understand it, we fixed the HVAC system in the Camrose Hospital. It's coming on in the next couple of weeks, and we also uh, reopened two operating rooms in our northern territory as well. So those are the kind of things that we're working on. Uh, when it comes to uh, these the, the, the medical uh, practice and creating a, 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 a medical home, we already negotiated, our health minister, Jason Copping, negotiated a new contract with the doctors that allow for alternative payments so that you can have a doctor and a nurse practitioner and a physiotherapist and a chiropractor all within the umbrella of one practice. And they agreed that we would work towards having 25% of doctors on that by the time of the next contract renewal. So those are things that we can do that are structural changes that don't Necessarily end up costing more money because if you can do, if you can build out your primary care system so that somebody has a family doctor to go to, then they don't end up in an emergency room. If you can empower your paramedics so that they can do more treatment on site, then they don't end up in the emergency room. Um, If you can have nurses triage a different way so that they can treat patients and release them faster. That doesn't necessarily cost more money. It's just a structural change. So those are the kind of changes that we're working at. It's incremental decisions, um, dozens of different decisions every day across the entire system that's going to make a big difference.
2: So is there something that will be done in lieu if that increase does not happen? Now? Where are we at in that situation right now in terms of negotiations with the federal government? And what could that mean for Albertans who are seeking health? healthcare. Well, for individual people, does that mean you know, money out of their at some point?
0: Or, 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 where we There's a couple of things that we're, we're looking at doing. So First of all, Dr. John Cowell has been working very closely with Alberta Health Services Management to identify the measures on those four key things that I was talking about so that we can we can measure how many uh, par- how many paramedics are able to get back out on the road in less than 45 minutes? That's what we've got to be targeting. Um, how long is the wait time from once you arrive in an emergency room until you get treatment or until you get admitted? Um, and uh, how many surgical surgeries do we have? We were at 69,000 surg- surgeries backlog when I first began. So I know some of the benchmarks. And as we uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to be getting a briefing from uh, Minister Copping later today. But in the next couple of weeks, we'll. Uh, make those those measures available so everybody knows the numbers that we're looking at, and then just be making incre- incremental approaches as we or incremental progress as we go along. The uh, the other part is that I've. I've, um, I've asked my uh, technology and innovation minister, Nate Glubish, to work on creating the architecture for a health spending account, which would bring more dollars into the system, more money into the hands of individual patients so that they can pay for all the things that are currently not covered by the healthcare system. So those are, are that's another major structural change that we're looking at making. And again, it doesn't rely on the federal government for us to do those kinds of things. We, we have um, now that we've seen a, an upsurge in our economy, we've seen a restoration of of oil and natural gas prices, we now have our oil sands companies paying a higher rate that gives us a permanently higher level of, of income, so it does allow for us to have a little more flexibility than we've had in the last eight years. All right,
1: let's hit th-
3: uh, If the federal government may be playing politics because there's a federal election coming on some of the federal provincial issues, you stand before us here as a politician with the, fe- with the provincial election coming, are, are you telling us that there is no politics or electoral calculus uh, in behind uh, the Sovereignty Act and your approach to federal politics?
0: I can tell you what I've observed, because I've, I've, I've observed the federal government for a long time. And what I do know is that when we had an equalization referendum to say we wanted to start a change in our relationship with the federal government, within days, Justin Trudeau appointed Stephen Gibble. Stephen Gibault has since denounced that he wanted to have an emissions cap on fertilizer, emissions cap on oil and natural gas, that he wants to have a mandatory carbon capture on our power grid, that he wants to have mandatory purchase of combustion engine vehicles that we're bringing through clean fuel standards, that he wants to increase the amount of biodiversity coverage in our province. That seems to me to be provocative. They've taken over plastics. They wouldn't allow us to back out of the carbon tax. Yeah, how many hits can Alberta take before we say stop it, put up a shield, and start pu- and start pushing back? So I would say that everything that I have done to this point has been in response to what I have seen as a hostile federal government invading our, our jurisdiction. And I think Albertans expect me to stand up for Albertans. And that's what I'm going to do. All right, let's hit the phone lines. Operator, first caller, please.
2: Thank you. David Staples, Edmonton Journal.
3: Hi there. Um, Premier, you talked about uh, Trudeau's obsession with phasing out the uh, oil and gas industry to be absurd. But doesn't he have a rational self-interest in uh, appealing to his voter base who are quite alarmed about climate change and lashing out against the oil and gas industry?
0: Well, I guess I look at it a little bit differently, especially in, with the events that we've seen in the last year with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the disruption of our energy markets. Uh, the fact that it has created a global affordability crisis. I think that uh, we now have a balance that we have to talk about. We have to talk about energy security. We have to talk about energy affordability. And we have to talk about getting our product to market with the most environmentally sustainable resources that we have. And and that's why Canada is the perfect solution. So I, I think that there's a way for the Prime Minister to be able to look and present Canada to the world as a solution to all three of these problems. And I, I wish that he would he would transition into that mindset. For, for many, many years, it seems to me that there was this argument that the uh, uh, objectives would be achieved with just wind and solar and battery power. I think we, we're now beginning to see that, that that's not the case. Europe has switched. Europe has talked about natural gas and, and carbon capture and and modular, or small modular reactors, nuclear, being eligible for green bonds. That That's the kind of, of shift that I think we need to see in this country, and that's the kind of shift that I'm, I'm hoping that the, the Prime Minister will do, because I think that we can have it all. I think we absolutely can have um, emissions reduction, but I think we also have to be aware that we've got to address energy security and, and energy affordability as well.
3: Uh, as a follow-up, isn't another kind of uh, rationale for for uh, Trudeau's rhetoric right now. There's a there's a negotiation going on between Ottawa, the oil companies, and uh, Alberta about who's going to pay for carbon capture and storage. I mean, by by kind of lashing out at the oil industry and about at, about the Alberta. Uh, people who run Alberta Energy, isn't he just trying to put Alberta in a weaker bargaining position, which hmm. which would make sense for him? He just wants to pay less and have Alberta pay more?
0: Well, I think we have to work together to make sure that we're competitive with the Americans. I think that the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States has has changed the calculus a bit for a lot of companies doing investment. And we have to make sure that we have a competitive environment. I think we do, because we do allow royalty deductibility, and that has to be factored into the equation. Uh, but we, we also must be aware as well that it's all our, our petrochemical industry too. It's not just oil sands. Our petrochemical industry, especially ones who are involved in hydrogen, that involves a carbon capture component also. So I, I think that as long as we are working towards the same goal, we want Alberta and Canada to be competitive with the United States and being able to attract that investment, then we can figure out what portion comes from federal tax relief and what portion comes from provincial tax relief. Let's remember, if we're talking about Um, uh, giving relief on corporate income taxes, the the federal government charges a higher rate than we do. We charge 8%. And so it it really is up to the federal government to to come to the table with something more significant. And so that's why we're having a a discussion to see what what it is that we need to do to make sure that we have the best environment. But but we're not late to this. We've put, I believe, over $2 billion of investment into into carbon capture technology, going back to the uh, the announcements that were, were put forward by by Ed Stelmack all the way back, I believe, in 2007 or 2008. So we're prepared to provide support and continue support going forward. We have our tier program, which just got approved at the federal level. That's an industrial pricing program where dollars go into an innovation fund, and we use that innovation fund to support emissions reduction. So we are, we are doing our part, and if we, we need to do more, we'll have that conversation.
1: All right, operator, the next caller, please. Thank you, Michelle Belfonte, CBC. Hi, Premier. Thanks for taking my question. Just wanted to change the subject a little bit. Um, I wonder if you could provide us with an update on that medical panel of COVID advisors that you wanted to uh, put in place to advise you on such issues. I mean, can you tell me who they are? Can you tell me if they're starting their work? Uh, do you have an update?
0: I'll have something more to say on that. I have. Uh... Uh, discussion that's go- right now going through cabinet and caucus. And as soon as I have uh, caucus approval, I'll be able to make an announcement in that regard. Yeah.
1: And when do you expect that will be?
0: I'm, uh, I'm targeting uh, the latter part of next week. All right. Operator, next caller, please.
2: Thank you. Catherine Grakowski, Alberta Today.
1: Hi. Um, so again, going back to the carbon capture storage and hydrogen, biofuel, small modular reactors, you've mentioned a couple things, but can you just... Clarify, what do you see as the provincial government's role for de-risking those projects? Is the answer grants? Is it tax credits? Is it improving the regulatory environment, all of the above? Something else I didn't mention?
0: One of the things that I have been told, I met with the Chemistry Industry Association in the last week, and one of the things that they really applauded our UCP government on was the Alberta Petrochemical Incentive Program and the way we've structured that. So I believe it's 12% of capital cost that is a tax credit. And as a result of that, we ended up seeing 14 megaprojects that got announced in our province. So that is the kind of of model that has shown itself to be successful. And the question would be, um, can we expand that to include more types of projects? That's one of the conversations that we're having. We're also having a conversation about the amount of dollars that are going into that into our tier program, that industrial pricing program, and whether more of those dollars can be used to support additional types of projects. So th- those would be the kind of things. I, I personally prefer, and I think the industry prefers, a model that allows them to keep more of their own dollars to invest in these kinds of projects, as opposed to grant programs that are subject to some kind of, uh, of uh, uh, application process. So those, those are the active conversations that we're having in caucus and cabinet at the moment.
1: And as a follow-up, if I may, on a different topic. One of the promise, promises you made in the leadership campaign was to tackle both affordability and pressure on the healthcare system with health spending accounts. And I realize mm-hmm. last month you said it's too big to happen right before the next election. Um, but perhaps there would be some beta testing. I'm wondering where we're at with that beta testing. Are we expecting a smaller pilot before the end of the election? Are you still running on it for the next election? What's, what's going on with health spending? I,
0: I've asked our technology and innovation uh, ministry to, to give me an update in the next couple of weeks on that. They were pretty busy working on developing our affordability portal. Uh, so that would be one thing they were working on. The, the, there's also a couple of other things in the mandate letter that they've been working on. But what I'm, what I'm hoping we will be able to do is through the budget process, have an allocation of dollars that would be um, eligible for the health spending account. And then we make sure that uh, we're able to do the, the work properly. I don't want to rush to do it without and, and then have uh, some errors because these things take a little bit of time. But my intention would be to be able to announce a little bit more through the budget process. And then in the weeks that follow that, I'll get a better idea of what our timeline might be on it. But I'm committed to, to uh, pursuing that as an option. Uh, politicians have health spending accounts. The public sector has health spending accounts. Energy executives have health spending accounts. It does seem to me that if this is a mechanism people are using, to manage all the costs that are not covered by health care, we should make that available to everyday Albertans too. So I'm, we'll, I'll have more to say about it after the budget is released. All right, we have time for two more questions. Operator, next caller, please.
2: Ram Thompson, the star.
3: Oh, thank you. Um, Premier, you said that you think that the federal government's out to basically destroy the oil and gas industry in Alberta. If, if, if That's their aim to do that, then why are they spending more than $20 billion to expand the Trans Mountain Pipeline?
0: Well, and I'm very hopeful that, that that gets completed. I'm I'm glad that they did make that decision, but I, I would put that in, in perspective that they didn't stand up for us when the Keystone XL pipeline got cancelled. They did cancel the Northern Gateway project, even though it had been approved. They put barriers in the way uh, so that Energy East pulled the plug on their um, pipeline project, and they also created a regulatory process that didn't allow the, front, the tech's frontier mine to go ahead. So I guess when I balance one project against the tens of billions of dollars that have been canceled. That's why I I question whether they have a commitment to making sure that our oil and natural gas workers remain uh, in a strong and vibrant industry. So the the point that I would say, I've I've been watching over the last couple of months as well, I I guess it's over the last year, when they launched this uh, proposed emissions cap on oil and natural gas, where they want to propose a specific emissions cap on our industry of 42% by 2030, knowing that we're not going to be able to have the carbon trunk line built by then. We're not going to have small modular nuclear rolled out by then. So if you don't have the technological innovations in place at the time that you're, you're, you're setting for achieving your target, it's a production cap. That's the only other way that you can achieve it. And that's why I'm, I'm concerned that they keep putting forward these aggressive targets. I think they're sending a very mixed message. I think that we can achieve emissions reductions, but we have to do it over a time frame that makes sense for the investment in the industry and also the technology when it becomes available. That's what, that's what we're working with the federal government to make them understand that. All right,
3: You could argue, of course, that um, Northern Gateway was a federal court that, that uh, yanked the approval for that because the previous federal government had not done enough work when it comes to First Nations consultation and looking at the environment. Um, of course the Keystone XL pipeline, that was that was Joe Biden. That was a federal decision in the US so we had no control over. But when you first began answering your question, it sounded like you're saying you hope that Northern sorry, you hope that Trans Mountain would go ahead. Do you have any doubts that the federal government will actually finish that project?
0: It's uh, I know that there has been significant uh, cost overruns on the project and I think I've heard Krista Freeland say that she is not intending to put any more money into the project so I'm watching with interest how they bridge that gap to get to the, the finish line on it so um, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we, we are able to open it up on time but I, I do know that it, had had, it because of the way it's been managed it's had significant cost overruns Alright operator last caller please
2: Thank you. Morgan Black, Global News.
1: Hi, Premier. Uh, going back to the topic of healthcare, care, uh, the NDP has released some AHS data that shows a high number of unfilled paramedic shifts in Edmonton mm-hmm. between January and October 2022. Um, so I'm just wondering, you touched on this a little bit earlier, what's the update on the impact we're seeing thus far with the AHS administrator and your government's efforts to kind of right the track on uh, paramedic wait times and staffing?
0: I don't. I don't have an update on on new data on that, but I, I can tell you that the approach that we've taken in the last two and a half years has burnt out our frontline workers. I know that. Uh, you know that the public knows that and that's why we had to make some decisions that we're going to make it easier on our front line and put more resources on the front line. One of the great frustrations that I have heard from our paramedics is when they show up for shift and then get called out of their home community and are never able to return back home. That's one of the things we're trying to resolve with the non ambulance transfer so that doesn't happen anymore. We're trying to give them more opportunity to treat on site so that they're able to use their full scope of practice. That I think will be a lot more rewarding as well and result in fewer in fewer trips to hospital and we're working very hard on having a better offload uh, ratio so that when paramedics arrive and drop a patient off they can be stabilized and they can get back out into the road and those are the kind of things that I think are going to improve the working conditions for our paramedics I've been I've been told by frontline paramedics that we have a five-year turnover in, in that profession. And I think it's because of some of those working conditions that uh, so desperately need to be fixed. I've been hearing about these issues for over 10 years, and we're, we're starting to work on fixing them. So Dr. John only got into the position on November 17th, so he's only been there... Uh, less than two months. He, we did have a Christmas break, so I, I, think he's, I think he's made some pretty extraordinary progress considering the limited amount of time that he's had, but he's very confident that we'll, with the decisions that we've made and the announcements that we've had, we've got new leadership now sorry, in paramedic at the Alberta Health Services, so I think you're going to start seeing some of those changes accelerate in the next couple of weeks. Do you have a follow-up? Great,
1: and as follow-up, yes, I do, thanks. Um, the NDB also noted it didn't have any data from November or December of last year in regards to the unfilled shifts. I'm just wondering if you have any insight um, into an EMS report or something like that that's come across your own desk or Minister Cobbings?
0: I have not, but as I mentioned, I'm meeting with Minister Copping later today, so I'll I'll see if there is any of that data. Our intention is to make sure that we have more data available, more meaningful and useful data, so that we have the ability to analyze it and and gauge progress. So we're in the process of just finalizing some of those indicators, but I can see if if, um, any of that data can be made available. I'll, I'll check with Minister Copping today if you want to follow up with Becca. All right. Thanks, everybody.